Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired as a sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight is my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Chief Boyce, and uh, get on with the show. Yeah, well, we have a fantastic guest tonight, uh, retired NYPD Chief of Detectives Robert Boyce, a 35-year veteran. And as I spoke to him uh, early off the air, I realized how many things we had in common besides police work. But uh, we're going to talk tonight about one of the um, most fascinating homicides in, probably in NYPD history, uh, the killing, the murder of Emmett Sanguin, a, a John Jay College graduate student. But before I do that, we're going to go to the Police Off the Cuff song, and we'll be right back. It's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff, one episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. Welcome back, folks. Chief Robert Joyce, besides, excuse me, Boyce, besides being the chief of detectives, is now retired and is a uh, an expert talking head on ABC, correct, Chief? That's right, Bill. Yes. And he has a show right now, and maybe you guys have seen it, and it's called New York Homicide on the Oxygen Network. And they actually covered this case, the murder of John Jay College graduate student, Mehmet Sanguian. Chief, you want to introduce... Uh, the preliminary of, of the case and what actually happened and who Amit Sanguian is? Sure, Bill. It's probably one of the, the seminal cases in, in our history in the NYPD, certainly in my time. Uh, at the 75 squad, I was fortunate uh, to work in the 75. Uh, two tours, uh, two tenures, I should say. Once as a sergeant in the squad and once as the XO downstairs. So I, I, I know uh, East New York fairly well and, uh, and, and, and how hard the detectives work there and how hard the cops work there as well. So in this particular case, it's, um, it's a terrible homicide of a woman. Um, her body was deposited on the road. I hate to use the word dump because it's you know out of reverence for the for the for the victim. Her body was placed on the side of the road in a really desolate area uh, on Fountain Avenue, uh, down by uh, Seaview Avenue, and there's really nothing there. But there was a trailer there uh, nearby with someone in the attending it, and of course it was a landfill there. It's the famous Fountain Avenue landfill. And, uh, and, I, and I also knew down there, um, ironically enough, that was kind of like a mob graveyard for a long time. Um, and we, as, as the XO there, as a sergeant there, uh, we would find uh, uh, remains of human beings there all the time. So this was something that, uh, as horrible as it was, um, you see the, the pictures now of the 7-5 squad in, in, in a cold night. This is February 25th, 2006, um, again, by the side of the road and uh, wrapped up in a, in a blanket. And those blankets are not unusual when you see carpets by the side of the road, things discarded. But this particular thing was the outline of a body 
and uh, we had the 9-11 caller, and that's what started the entire case. Uh, wrapped up um, clearly with duct tape, and as we uh, unfolded the, the blanket, it got worse and worse as we, as, as we got along. Uh, but uh, the crime scene unit uh, understood what forensic uh, evidence, how important it is, and how it seems nominal at the time, but it comes back uh, at any different time in, in the case, and now you're running in that direction, it all falls into line. So great job by crime scene. And the first officer on the scene, Christy Bernardo, um, and he's on the show, and he talks about what he encountered there. So a very intense case, very intense show. Um, and uh, it's time Sean McTeague, and of course the great Mark Brooks, who just retired the first grader, had the case. It had so many cases in the 75. So um, he made a big mistake, the perp. Uh, he put he put the body in the 75 and probably <laughs> called one of the best squads in the city. Kind of dopey. Uh, but uh, they got him off the street, and that's important. It's you, know, you know, Chief, one of the things that is the most important thing in homicide investigation is to get the body identified, to find out who this person is. Because until you find that out, it's really tough to find out victimology. It's it's tough to establish a timeline. It's tough to establish where did this, in fact, occur. Because as you said earlier, I know you don't like to use the term, but this appeared to be a dump job, that the murder happened at another location and the body was placed at this location. You know, Bill, you start with nothing, uh, basically, and there was no ID on her at all. And she was, she was, uh, she, she was naked. She was stripped naked and wrapped in that thing. So you really had nothing. And you know what we do? We roll the, we roll the uh, uh, fingerprints and see if we can get an ID that way. And if you don't get it, then you take the hard prints and you take it down, you do it the other way. So this was all happen, um, happened initially. You really don't know what you have and where, where it's taking you. Now, one of the detectives, I think it was Chris, said there was a stroll nearby with prostitutes. Um, and I know exactly where it was in the 7-5 at that time. Um, it's not there anymore, thankfully. We, we knocked that out. But you really don't know what you don't, you know. The expression is you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so with that phone call saying the missing person really helped us and got, off, got the case moving quickly. So we were fortunate that this woman was loved and she had friends who, who missed her. And that's who called and that's what got the case done. So that expedited the case quite a bit. So the phone call was from who, Chief? It was a cousin or a friend. I'm not sure. I don't remember which. Uh, but they were worried about her. She hadn't been seen. And she had a she had a large network of friends. And you saw a couple of them on the show. Uh, how they're still in pain uh, from the loss of this woman. So uh, so that's what helped idea, idea immediately. You can go for, as you know, Bill, you can go for uh, days and weeks and months not identifying the body. And uh, it, it really takes, it really stunts the uh, the investigation. So we were fortunate that she had so many friends that they called and, and family, and we got the case going. Okay, let's, Chief, let's take it from there. You got the phone call. Now you know who she is. Now, how, how long did it take you to establish you're doing a timeline? Well, one of her friends obviously could cut to the chase. I believe her name was Claire Higgins. Claire, yeah. She was with him at Sanguian the last night yeah. she was seen. She was out drinking with her. She saw her at 0330 hours. I believe on on two fifteen, uh, 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 twenty two thousand six, the day the night she or the morning that she was kidnapped and murdered. Bill, it was her birthday. They were out yeah. celebrating and celebrating um, her birthday. Yeah, yeah, celebrating her birthday on the Lower East Side, uh, down the Bowery area, and um, going bar hopping. It's, listen, I've done that a few times myself, and it's it's, it's and I understand that. And um, sometimes it's time to go home. It's time to go home. I think Claire had survivor's guilt. And I understand that too. Um, and she was looking for her the next night. 
in that area. Shows you what kind of what kind of sticker she was, you know. And uh, and we had to find her. And once we found her, and then you wait, you wait on the phone, you wait on the credit card, you wait. It, it, those those hours, um, you have to fill them with something. So Canvas is uh, is what you do it with. And uh, so we knew where she was missing from. We just had to put the pieces together. And that was the hard part. And then you get stunted by people. We talked about it before, Dorian, who told who, who uh, wouldn't give us the right information at first. We got past that. Took a little while. Yeah, yeah. this is uh, Daniel Dorian on screen. And if it sounds familiar, it's because his parents owned the bar Dorian's Red Hand up on 60-something Street and on the Upper East Side. And that came into play in 1986 in the Robert Chambers uh, murder of Jennifer Levin. Sort of a weird little uh, tidbit of... Uh, of information, but you can see he doesn't look like the most cooperative type guy. And he had a good reason not to be cooperative. You want to speak upon that a little bit, Chief? Yeah, you know, he's a bar, he's a saloon keeper. We know them, you know, and then, but uh, there seems to be a, a black cloud over his head that keeps following him. Um, so, you know, in uh, Dorian's Red Hand, I was in the 2 4 when that happened, 1986. My friend Mike Sheehan, uh, God bless him, he, uh, he had the case and he ran with it. So, um, and he, and, and so here it is the same family. And so you get a hold of these things and you say, oh, my God, I hope lightning doesn't strike twice here. But it looks like it did. You know, someone who was in that bar and was murdered. So um, so that's where you start. Now, you had to get there first. It was a Pioneer bar first. And then you got to uh, to the Falls bar and you start breaking things down. And you start, who's there? Who's, who's going to give me information? Who's not? And you have different ways. And you know an investigation. You run like hell towards one way. And it goes, you run into a red uh, uh, brick wall and you have to turn around and start someplace else so we finally got to where we needed to be which was the falls bar and uh and you know and you look at it afterwards uh, and sean was there and sean details it really strongly very well him and mark um great pairing um and uh they went through the whole thing and they they were able to find out what time she left and what she was drinking and they got that from a credit card where she was because claire had left prior to that with the pioneer so we're really at, at an end, and we found the then we found the credit card at the bar, and that's what set it off. You know, Chief, I had spoken to Sean McTie, and he, uh, people think like when they watch these cases on television that you're like, let's find the credit card, and you get like a, you press a button and you yeah. get immediate information on all the credit card usage. They don't understand that it takes time, and nothing happens very quickly. But Sean told me they got the credit card information back in two days, which is very quick. It's, you know, it, it is fast, yeah. It's back then, yeah. it's faster than you know. I, we opened this credit card desk. I don't know if they still have it in the detective bureau, but we thought it was so important that you call up and you can get someone with really expertise. Cut right, it was we put it in the grand city division. I don't know if they still have it, I hope they do. Uh, because then someone who has it can boom can can really expedite the case quickly and get that information. That's how we found uh the false bar, uh, through the credit card. And it, he told me she had had she had ordered two rum and cokes, rum and cokes, exactly right. Um, and it's towards closing time, you know, it's close to four o'clock in the morning and you happens in the street at four o'clock in the morning. Um, there's usually some chaos. People leave them. People don't, don't know what to want to go after out afterwards. So you don't really know where she went at that point. And then we started drill, drilling down on, on Daryl Little John. You know, nothing is more, um, you know, tough in a homicide case when someone lies to you and makes you do 10 times the amount of work you would have had to do if he had told you, told you the truth. And if Dan Dorian had told you, yeah, uh, she was, I told the bouncer to, to get, get rid of her. Basically, he said, get her out of the bar. Apparently, she was a little intox, and maybe she didn't want to leave or whatever. And he told this guy, and that was the last person 
to see her uh, that she was seen with. That would have really helped you guys a lot. Cut to the chase. And when you figured out who this guy, Little John, was, it wouldn't be too difficult to put two and two together. Well, he, he ran a pretty good con at first, Bill, if you remember. Uh, you know, you deal with these guys. They're, they're psychopaths. They're good con men. So he says, con, no, I don't know what happened. I just walked around the door. Once we got to him, and all of a sudden, we found a homeless person outside. He says, no, I saw a dispute. And then all of a sudden, let's, let's, let's run little John. And then, you know, the, and, you're, uh, and, you, phone, and you're, uh, you go back and you run him and say, oh, my God, we got a bad guy on the line here on parole. Shouldn't have been in the bar to begin with. You know, and that changed things in Mets, in Mets law afterwards, which was a good thing, too. So he had a bunch of different names. Wasn't a big fellow for a bouncer, that's for sure. Um, but he had a hard look to him. And, um, and again, so we do, that's when the really race started right then. They all all about this guy. He had that cell block D look, you know, he walked up and down the tier, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, he was going back. He's there now. So it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, so now all of a sudden it starts to come. You see real evil. You see it in his eyes. When you start talking, you know, the guy stinks when you talk to him, he's no good. And then, uh, and so now you do it, you, you go into his phone, he has some parts phone, he gives it to you. Um, and, and then you start doing that. Um, and you, uh, I don't know if we had CODIS back then in 2006. I don't remember when we started CODIS with DNA. It became really irrelevant if his code, if his DNA profile was on, uh, you know, was, uh, was on, 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 on file. I don't know, but uh, I don't remember. But once we got all that down, um, then, then all of a sudden it was just like cat and mouse for us to, to figure it all out and find out his house. But that crime scene in his house was really something. You saw the pictures. Uh, you know, what's amazing, Chief, is like people don't understand uh, circumstantial evidence and basically means from which inferences are drawn. And when you pile up circumstantial evidence on top of uh, on top of each other, it becomes very, very powerful, you know. And I know we could talk about some of the circumstantial evidence, the cell phone hits, which was so, so important in this case, putting him right near that where the body was dumped, uh, putting him in in that van, driving along, I think, the Belt Parkway, uh, all of these these things that come together. And then, of course, the, I think they found blood on the ties that were uh, around her wrists. His yeah, blood. You know, you know what the story with that, Bill, was? They found his blood. His blood. Right, right. He was a nosebleeder. Um, and we, we, we believe at the time when he tied off the, the legs of that, he, when he put it there, he bent down, he started nosebleeding. That's what we think that's where he came from. Because when we talked to people around afterwards, they said, no, he was a nosebleeder, nose had a real problem with it. So that's what we thought. Because she was, you saw what, how she was murdered. She's asphyxiated with a sock in her mouth. And they right. picked up her body. So back then, I think, uh, I think it was Chris or um, Sean said they saw the fibers. And, and all of a sudden, well, we'll get back to that later, but right, that's important to make note of. You know, the hairbrush that was nearby, again, it helped us a lot. That touched DNA. These were terms back in 06 that we were just learning about, ping and phone, phone pings, all these things. So it really was, a, like I said, it was, a, it was a major case back then, and it, and it really set us out going forward. Here you had this, it was uh, clearly it was the outline of a woman. So if you were driving by, that fellow called. But it was, I'll tell you, if you know anything about the seven five, it's way down the end. And back in that time, it was it was it was it was February. There was nobody out there. Right. And we got lucky. Even, even on this blanket she's covered with, we discussed it off the air. Also, there was forensic evidence on this. Uh, a there was semen from his brother who had passed away in 1994. So it was over 10 years old. Uh, as you said earlier, they never washed the blanket. I think there was. The mother had a rabbit 
hair coat in a closet. And I believe there was rabbit hairs on this blanket as well as a hair from the mother. And then I think his DNA or that brush had his DNA on it. So all this stuff, this fiber evidence, this microscopic evidence was all so hugely important to building a case against this savage. Yeah, well, you know, it has that transfer of evidence that we talk about, a little Kurd's law that uh, goes back into the 1800s, for crying out loud, that uh, any time a crime is committed, there's always a transfer, transference of, of, of evidence that goes forward. And it's in whoever comes to a crime scene, leaves it, and he leaves something from that crime scene with him. So you look at these things and you, you know, you're trying to figure things out. Once we got to the house, once we, did the, we saw the van, go into the house, see the red fibers, see the red carpet, it all started adding up really, really quickly. We had put him away in jail on a parole violation, get him off the scene because he is going to kill somebody again. We, and we'll go into that in a few minutes. So this is like a really dangerous guy. And I, and I had them when I was chief of D in the same, in the same precinct. And I'll talk about that later. Uh, I had a case just that you have to get that guy off the street. He's, he's a murderer. So that's, so they put him off the street, put him in Rikers and now we can work the case and we can, and people will start talking to us knowing he's away. And that's pretty much what happened. The fibers, the blood, uh, the DNA, you know, all those things, you know, and that, that you can recover and turn them into evidence and lock that door. And that's what happened there. There was no one, there was no eyeball here. So it was a forensic rich case. And that's how you have to run with it. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing, uh, Phil, you got anything? Yes. First I want to, uh, I want to congratulate you chief on New York homicide because I've been watching it from the first episode. I think it's up to about episode 12 or 13 now. And yeah. I think, uh, I've been getting a lot of good feedback from, uh, other uh, colleagues and just, uh, civilians as well. Uh, very good show. Lots of luck with it. I, I, you know, we worked uh, a little together on that, on the, uh, on the LMB case, Lewis Balbati case, but, uh, you know, looking at the crime scene, the, 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 the pictures that Bill showed in the beginning, you know, as the detective, uh, you got a body, uh, like you said, placed in that location. Um, and, you know, when you first get there, unidentified, no, uh, no wallet, uh, no identifying clothing. Uh, basically, what we would refer to that as a bag of shit case. So when you're standing there in the first you know, minutes or hours of the investigation, you're really kind of uh, scratching your head. But then, like you said, as the things uh, start to unravel, uh, those red fibers, I'm sure that became noted right away. And then uh, whatever DNA examination was done off the blanket, uh, the phone records, the credit card, getting her identified, those were all uh, steps that, you know, all the pieces were building. And uh, it led to Daryl Littlejohn. Now, the fact that uh, the, the owner of the bar gave us, uh, gave you guys a, uh, you know, like yeah. sort of put in a different direction. Yeah. How how badly do you think that that um, uh, uh, stymied the investigation or put it off? I mean, obviously we led to uh, the arrest of uh, Daryl Littlejohn, but did it, did it uh, stall you guys in any way? It, it did stall a, a bit, but there's nothing you can't overcome. You know, and all of a sudden he shows up at headquarters with a lawyer and wants to talk to us. So, um, so yeah, so you, then all of a sudden you come clean. But you were, at, at that point, we were, we were moving in, in the right direction. because, And he actually actually blamed Dorian for the murder, if you remember, yeah. uh, at the trial. Right, so, that was his defense in, in, at the trial. Yeah, not much of a defense. And yeah, in this case, it was a media storm. Um, if, you, if you remember that, it was crazy. It was in the papers every day. There was people people afraid to take a cab home from from a from a bar at night, or it really it's one of those cases like like I had Karina Vitrano in the 106 um, in, in in 2016. It changed people's lives because they were afraid to go out and do what they wanted to do now. You know, so it was it was that type of thing, a media storm, 
And by the way, we just got we just got the word for second season on the show. So, uh, That's so great. Uh, we're happy about that. And I think what the show shows, what it does display is how the hard work of the detectives and the symbiotic relationship, um, symbiotic relationship between the family and the detectives. And that's and that's where you came in. You just did it masterfully, masterfully on the uh, on the Elmby Smoney Gardens case, and how close you get with them, and how important they are to drive you to the next level. Because you get tired of these things. You know, I don't have to tell you one body, and you and you, you don't go home for a couple of days. And when you do, it's for a couple Absolutely. hours. And next yeah. thing, you know, next thing you know, you're back at work, and um, and uh, and you're and you're right at it again. So, and some of the detectives I remember really well from Broken Off Homicide, and we had we had we had Sean, and we had. Uh, Mark and Chris, but there were others who worked the case as well, who I know were really fine detectives, and uh, a lot of work went into the case. And uh, in the middle of uh, it was front page case for a long time, and uh, it was a tough case. It was a tough. Yeah, case. Absolutely, yeah. folks. This is police off the stories. If you like this show, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And if you want to join our, our YouTube family, we have five different levels. You can support us on YouTube, be a member of the Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories family. Lee Perry, thank you so much for the 999 Super Sticker. Aaron Rodriguez, a new member. Aaron, you've been supporting us for a while, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You know, I just want to mention the chief was talking about how emotionally you get involved in these cases, and that's for sure. And in homicide, we always talk about a real homicide. And if you and look, every victim is a real victim. But this person was a was a graduate student. She was killed by a stranger. And it really hits you. And it's one of those when you get a homicide like that, you don't ever you don't want to go home until it's solved. You really it's something keeping you at work. And you don't care if you don't get any sleep. You know, I've I've been up on cases 30, 35, 40 hours, and you know, you I was in Connecticut one time and I was, I was up for 35 hours. Two detectives from Connecticut state police said to me, what's that detective's name? And I knew him for 10 years. I was so tired. I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> I was like, your this brain is turns, crazy. You know, your brain turns to oatmeal after a while. You just, you know, and you need yeah. that sleep that desperately. And, uh, but even when you're home and you work in the case, it's exactly, months, exactly it's in your head. And, yeah. and, and even when you're with your kids or your family, something like that sneaks into your head and you start yeah. thinking, what I got to do. So it's, it's really is, it's a great calling, but it's not. It's a grind. It's not an easy life. And Chief, in, in, 19, in 1993, I had a four-part homicide. I went to work on a Wednesday afternoon. To, we had caught the, the case on the weekend, and on Wednesday, I went to work for a four-to-one. And first perp, Khaled, went through the night. Thursday, second perp, turned himself in, gave information on the third perp. Friday, when I came back from Central Book, and now I'm up already two days, guys from the homicide squad in my office said, listen, you know, if you want to go home, we'll go out. We'll go searching for this other guy. I couldn't. I just, I, I knew if I went home, I wasn't going to sleep. You know, fourth, uh, third perp captured and went through the night. I didn't get home till Saturday morning from Wednesday. So again, uh, I wasn't going to, you know, go home and get any rest. I knew that those other perps were still outstanding. So you didn't want anybody else to get them, but you too. Exactly. You, wanted, you wanted to be there too for that. Yeah, <laughs> That's what yeah. drove me all these years too. I wanted to be there when it happened. You know, exactly. Exactly. You don't want to miss it. And Bill, you were talking about that. You couldn't remember the guy's name. The, by Friday night, I was in the DA's office, trying, you know, trying to give the story to the DA. And in between when she would turn to the computer and start typing, I was actually falling asleep in the chair. So, but you want to know something? It felt good. We took four bad guys off the street. That, that uh, was the Kiko, uh, Kiki case. Um, 
Uh, I, I did it with you, Bill. It was uh, a drug dealer that was murdered. They thought he was, uh, he was, it turned out he was an informant for the ATF and all of that. But uh, it was a good case. Fourth Perp was captured about a month later down at uh, parole. So, and again, you get so personally involved in these things that, uh, you know, you can't, you, you breathe it, you, you sleep it, you drink it. You, it's just, it stays with you until the bad guys are in jail. Especially, so Chief, I always want to mention that with this case too, Here's a girl, two girls go out drinking. One of them goes home. This girl is out drinking and she's a victim of a horrible crime. Everyone else in New York City now is wondering, could that happen to me? And then when it comes out that it was the bouncer and there's an industry, of course, that has no regulation whatsoever. And perhaps this case made the state regulate the uh, club security business because Here's this guy, Danny Dorian, hires a career criminal to be his bouncer. I mean, what's wrong with that picture, you know? Now, you, if you remember, um, we had to, after that, they had to be printed, they had to be run, and, and we had to know who they were. So it, it changed dramatically. And, and, they, and then we had to have ID people coming in the car, in the car, in the clubs and everything. So it really changed the club scene in, in New York for a while anyway, especially down that end. But that end was, wasn't completely gentrified for a long time. At night, we all know what the city's like at 4 o'clock in the morning. We've been out there. And so right. it's not the same place at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so it's, we have to put some uh, some structure in that chaos that we have down there. And uh, anywhere in the city, but mostly in the lower Manhattan where all the, all the young people go. You know, that's a, that was a brilliant idea that came out of it, though, is when people go into clubs, they scan their license. Yep. Because then if there's a crime in the club or a shooting, you have every single person that was there, you know, with their identification was taken by the club. That was a great uh, security thing. It really was. And I was, I had had Manhattan detectives for a while and I know how important that was in solving our crimes there. Because, you know, some people pulls out a gun and starts shooting the place up and they had on video. It it was really video really came into clubs at that point too. So it was a game changer. And I always say this victim did not die in vain. She changed the city. How we how we go and visit? So that's Emet Sangin for you. Her her, her loss was a ter- terrible loss, but she she created change in doing so. Even with the, absolutely, even, I mean, you see some of those clubs in Chelsea. Some of them you don't realize it. Thousands of people can fit in those clubs. Two three thousand people. Yeah, we did one of the shows on Joe Community Alley, a great kid from Connecticut, and uh, one of the fir- first show we did actually. It was yes. seventeenth precinct. He was murdered. Uh, and it was a tough, it was a tough uh, road to hoe on that one too, but the detectives and the family did a really good job in helping us get it to that doorstep and helping all of his friends. So um, it's, it can be dangerous. And at four o'clock in the morning, down that, that that was in a different part of Lower Manhattan. It's a mess down there at four o'clock in the morning. There's people all over the place. Yeah, it's it's it is a mess. You know, Chief, I want to get back to Little John and who he is and who he was and. One of the things that people don't realize is that putting him on ice, so to speak, put him in, putting him in Rikers Island while you guys worked the case, A, it gave you time to work the case, and B, the publicity for this case actually drew another victim out of the woodwork that uh, was kidnapped by Little John. And they were able to try her case prior to the Amet Sanguian case, and he was convicted and got 25 to life on that case before you ever even tried the Amet Sangin case. Yeah, it was important to do that as well. It's, just, it's really, she saved her own life when she kicked that door open and got out of that car. We found her DNA in the car, by the way. And so wow. and, and she, she was cuffed in it as well. So that it was a strong case all the way around. When we recovered that van, 
on the on the um, on the Met Sangian case, that young lady's DNA was in the van. Um, so that was a great recovery by crime scene. I can't tell you how important crime scene is, crime scene unit is to us in the detective bureau. Uh, they solved all my major cases that I had as chief of day. So uh, kudos to them, as well as the hard work of the detectives who don't go home and sleep, uh, and like we talked about before. So it's a team effort. I always say not one person solves a solves a murder. It's a whole there's a whole bunch of us. You know, I Chief, agree. we do nothing but um, praise the NYPD crime scene unit on this case because people always say, "Oh, the FBI." We shut up with the FBI. The NYPD crime scene unit is as good or better than the FBI uh, forensic team because they work much harder. They work on way more cases. I tell you what, I had a case uh, where uh, one of the terrorists blew up Twenty uh, Third Street. In September of 2016, I, 2016 was a ridiculous year for us. Yeah, especially in my time, it was just we had murders all over the place, and it really was. And after that, everything changed. 2017, the numbers were way down. But we worked with the FBI um, crime scene as well. And on that, on that, that explosion, to he, he set off a, a, a pressure cooker bomb. We were able to collect it. We worked hand in glove. It was really, really well. It was great. We had some really talented people out there, and we needed it. And we had that mutt, that terrorist ID'd eight hours later. Uh, and that's that's how good that's how good that curse case worked hand and glove with with our federal partners really worked well. And he that's the same guy that shot the Jersey City cop, I think, right? Tom Rahimi. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. Linden, I believe they got they got him in Linden, New Jersey. He was. They uh, did. And it was funny because I was talking to John Miller about it. I said, uh, "We'll get this guy." I said, "We'll lock him up." He goes, "Bob, he's going to flame out. He's going to flame out. He's not a perp. He's a terrorist. It's a different thing." John was exactly right. The guy the guy was sleeping in and he had no plan B. Uh, right. He was sleeping in some uh, some near some bar or restaurant in in in, in the closed spot, and he just yeah. pulled us. I think we put like I think uh, the police department put like twelve or thirteen rounds in him. He's yeah. Still, well, he's all, he's out in Florence, uh, Colorado right now. We'll see him anytime soon. I knew I knew the actual cop that uh, my family owns a, a factory in Linden, and they have some security from the Linden police. And the, they knew the cop. He used to come in there and do security for them. And he just went over, like you said, to wake him up. A guy sleeping in the doorway, and the terrorist just uh, whipped out the gun, started shooting, and it was like a running gun battle, I believe. Uh, but uh, thank God the good guys won on that one. I, I believe the. the officer was shot but uh not seriously injured if i no, no, he yeah i think he actually winged another cop too and on that shootout we had him id by the time we uh bill sweeney was the uh, uh assistant director in new york at the time i met him that night for the first thing he just got to new york and uh we said let's work this together it's it's, it's going your way bill but, yeah. you know, bill sweeney, but i want to be right with right next to you we got to get this done because we got to talk to this mayor yeah. uh every five minutes so uh and we did and and we had his picture Here's your guy, and he goes, and he already had. All perps make mistakes, you know. You got to find the mistakes. And yeah. this, this particular perp, on the bomb that didn't go off on 27th Street, he left his fingerprint on it. So that's how we nailed him. He was. He, they make mistakes all the time. You got to find the mistake. Yeah. And that's. And that's so we were on him at that point. You know, Chief, the uh, FBI was actually very, very helpful working along with the NYPD in the LMB case. I mean, they did stuff that would have taken the NYPD, you know, money wise and, you know, dumping cell phone towers and, and uh, all the surveillance they did. They really did a lot of work on that case. Uh, again, you know, our crime scene obviously has much more experience. There's, you know, many more cases that our guys respond to than their guys. So there's a point to be made what Bill said. But uh, yeah, when no, you I get cooperation with them. Uh, they really, uh, they did a lot of good work on that case. Yeah, great. you know, I'm not putting down the FBI crime scene. You know, I'm just saying ours is just as yes. good or better because they, 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 they do have a big, uh, you know, and uh, Quantico. That, their that lab, yeah. They, they have, they have data crunching ability that we don't have, 
Right, <laughs> I mean, right. I had, I had, I had a, um, I had a case in, in Southeast Queens where they were trying to kill a cop, and a bomb went off. It was a, it was a homemade bomb, and uh, it killed the individual who opened it, the, the man who lived there. And they were actually trying to kill a police officer in six, seven at the time. And, um, and, and that data crunching that they have, that ability, helped me solve the case. So uh, it, it's a great pairing. And uh, I, I said, we opened up a lot of task forces that we never had before under Bill Bratton. Because he just said, oh, Bob, you do what you want. And you open up as many as you can. And we did. I think it opened like 10 or 11. It was a lot. That's great. The key is, I want, to play, I want to play a little bit of this. Was, I interviewed Sean McTie about a year ago. And I just want to play a little bit of this. Trying puts him at, at the very least dumping the body, right? Absolutely. And you know, we some of this evidence, even though it doesn't directly what we call it is um, circumstantial evidence. But when you have a huge, huge amount of circumstantial evidence, it it becomes very, very powerful, very right. powerful. So now, in the tape that was around her face. There was uh, carpet fibers from his house, and uh, mink and rabbit hair. So on the on the collars of winter jackets, they'd be a fur collar. This particular specific hair was found that was from his house in his closet, back on the body. So that means now we know that she was at his house at some point. And that's all that stuff is called uh, for us people that are crime buffs. It's it's evidence linkage and cross cross contamination. Correct. Whereas it's powerful to have his evidence on her, but it's also very powerful to have her evidence in his house, which is right. just very, very powerful as you know. Sean, let me just again shout out to some of our Again, the low cards theory of exchange, which you were alluding to before, Chief. And it's so I mean, again, like we're talking about her her evidence, physical evidence, is in his house. I mean, how did that happen, you know? Two crime scenes matched together. It, 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 it really made the case there. And, and Sean was Sean was great at the end of it. He said this was the highlight of his career when you put a real bad guy away. And, and, and that's what he did. He solved, the, he solved the tough one. Yeah, well, I mean, 100%. And this guy, you know, when you just even look at this guy, you can see evil is written all over this guy's face. And yeah. this is this is why we're cops, a guy like him. You know, yes, and, that's, and that's why society needs this bill. Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, and, and it's like the trend in the criminal justice system is like you know bailing and paroling guys like this, and I don't think they really understand who these people are. You know, yeah, they yeah. see it in a much different way than we do. You know, yeah, and then you know, and a friend of mine, retired chief, called me and he says we were talking for a while. And he says, you know, we're scarred for life. I said, I said, I said, why? Because we look at life different than everybody else in the world. We see danger when it's you know when no one else sees it. We see threats. How true. This is the way, that's just the way we you know we didn't even sign on for that. It just it just became us. You know, at some point that we see things that others don't. You know, in uh, in society. And you're right. We see these 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 individuals getting out now that it's a threat to society, and it's, we're just going to keep locking them up because I tell you what, there are some people who are just incorrigible, and it's a small number in society, but nonetheless. They're just incorrigible people, and they're just going to keep committing crimes, and they and they think in a warped way. This guy was real evil. E evil, even in our business, is, yes. is, is rare. Is rare. That is is real evil right there. And we just see idiots who most of the time will get, will get arrested. Sometimes they jump in the car. So it's, it's so easy. But it's uh in, in this this particular person, he was a true predator, and we were fortunate to put him away before he hurt anybody else. 
Chief, you know, a lot of times in my career, I would, uh, like you said, there'd be like, let's say a fight, a drug fight, a bar fight or something. Somebody got murdered. You make the collar and the person, you know, they were bad, but they weren't really evil. But I've looked into the eyes of evil a few times. And I tell people, I actually met the devil. When you have a guy confessing to you, talking about a murder, like it's, you know, uh, picking up a tissue off the floor or something. And, you know, it's really, really, uh, you look at Daryl Littlejohn, that other young lady probably was going to meet the same fate as a Mets and game had she not jumped out of that van. And that brings me to this, Chief. Is there a possibility that there were other cases that this guy may have been involved in? I'm sure that was looked at. Is there any... Uh, uh, any chance that there were other cases? So that, that goes across the city. You know, everybody knows about it. We put out um, bulletins. We train our officers to look for anything else. So if someone has an open case of this guy down that area, um, then then we take a look at it. From, from what I know, there was one other case. He was never prosecuted. They were able to link to this fella uh, because you couldn't make the ID. It's as simple okay. as that. You couldn't put him in. So it was one other case we know he did. Uh, so it was three altogether. Uh, we think we actually we think we, he did it, but we couldn't. They do, the prosecutor wouldn't go forward with it. So at least three. So at least three. One, one murder. You know, one, you one know when you look at back at 2006, and you alluded to it before, we've come so far in 16 years in regards to evidence and technology, uh, some of the tools that we have now. And I, I saw that you spoke on ABC News about uh, technology in regards to law enforcement. And it seems every time we get something new. One of these groups tries to take it away from us, like the ACLU. They want to get rid of facial recognition. Uh, Shot spotter is uh, that's also racially based. You know, everything we get that helps law enforcement. I'd like to explain that one, though, Billy, that shot spotter. I don't understand how that's that's uh, racially based. I don't know. You know, it's it's funny. Shot spotter saves lives, by the way. And and somebody I'm a Brownsville, East New York guy. And that's where I did a lot of my career. And some of those, you know, in those neighborhoods, just just from apathy, they don't even call when the shots going off. But we collect that uh, that brass on the rooftops, wherever it happens, and put it into a system. We're able to do linkage, what we talked before, and link it to other crimes. I solved a crime one time in uh, uh, they shot a New York Nick in a strip club in, in Queens because we, you know, because we hooked it up to another place in Sumner houses in Brooklyn. We were able to figure out who did it and made the collars. Those those things are all important. Uh, so abandonment DNA bill is what I think uh, you were talking about. They want to take that away. I'm pushing back on that. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that we have to have. And with, with science, it's funny with science, it's no bias. In it. uh, there's no, there's, there's, it's, it's actually, and there's no human error in it. It is what it is, science on a forensic uh, discipline. It is what it is. And it's, and it's the same thing with uh, one of the cases I had in Queens with Karina Vitrano. They're trying to get saying he's innocent. No, he's not innocent. Because you know, when you put out information, you you keep qualifying information back to the press. So in this particular case, we kept a few things back. That perp told us that in in, in the in the, uh, in the interview room exactly what happened. So we never put that out. He couldn't have gotten that from anyone else, but the fact that he was there. So these are important things we do. And you're right. And one of the things in the show, I don't know if you saw Murder at the Met. Uh, yes, 1980. It was a great show in Manhattan North Detectives, and Mike Struck uh, was quite a character on the show. And Jerry Giorgio has since passed, so I didn't get a ch- chance to talk to him. But Mike, um, he he had none of that. They had none of that. Right. Yeah, he really his old time skills. How good you are in the box, you know, and the fact that they had really had a sketch of the perp that changed everything on that case. He looked just like one of the uh, one of the workers in the place, you know. And uh, right. this guy out of jail, that guy too, by the way. He, after doing like 35, 40 years. But that that perp, because he was the, the sketch was that good, 
other uh, other other workers there, stagehands, gave him up and, and said, "Hey, that's your guy." And that's then we put him in the box and he gave it up. And that's how the thing got solved. But knowing that back then, they had nothing like we have today. You know, yeah, you know, you wonder how it, they solved cases back then without uh, video footage, cell phone Actually, footage, and if there's video me, everywhere now. You know, how did they do that? Indulge me for a minute. This, the, the, there's a guy in East New York who just beheaded a woman and just threw the body out out in the street um, just just two weeks ago. That yeah. same perp, I had a job when I was a 2-4 cop. I was the first on the scene. He had killed someone else in the same fashion, a similar fashion. And um, and I go to the scene. I say, well, they're never going to solve this. This woman's in a bag in Central Park. Would have been a big story now. Was was kind of like a side story back then. And this is like 80, 85 now, and uh, I'm fairly new on the job. I come in the next day to identify the body because it was my job down at the uh, OCME. And I go to the desk and the sergeant says, yeah, go upstairs, squad solve that already. What? I ran upstairs. I found a 40-year-old, 40-year detective on the team, walked me through the whole thing, and I was hooked at that point as far as detective work. I was hooked. And it's yeah. the same perp. He gets out on parole, and he murders another woman. It's his third woman he murdered. Yes. It's crazy. Unbelievable. It's crazy. There's, a, there's an argument for parole, wouldn't you say? Well, you know what? It's uh, we see it all the time that this guy who killed uh, two of our officers uh, way back one is speaking at a college now. It bothers me. Unbelievable. It bothers me. It bothers me. Oh, bottoms. Yeah, it's yeah there's nothing he can share. Yeah, uh, Waverly Jones and uh, yeah, the Argentine. Tony Argentina. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a horrible time, and I wasn't on the job for that. But I, I talked to many officers who were, and they they were walking around looking looking to watch each other's backs left and right. It was a tough time. We've had tough times too. But uh, they were really under, under the gun at that point. You know, Eddie Hartnett wrote a great letter to the president. I think it's of, uh, is it Brockport, the school he, yes. he's going to speak at? Yeah. He wrote a letter saying he was a cop in the 3-2 right after that or during that. And, you know, basically in very eloquent language, he told her, you know, this is ridiculous. He's not a political prisoner. He's a murderer, you know. If you know the uh, the circumstances of the homicide, it's even worse. Going here, how he executed him, how he emptied his gun into him, uh, and so it, it's that bad. And then, uh, and now, now this this seems to happen. The terrorists get out, they get jobs, they teach in they teach in school, the professors, you know, crazy. Columbia and, University has uh, what's her name, the one from the Nyack murder, uh, Bowden. She yeah. teaches at Columbia, and the her husband just recently got paroled, and their son is a San Francisco DA. That's right. It's just, you can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable. You know, the other day, Phil and I were watching um, Tiffany Caban, uh, who's from Queens. Yeah. She's she's outrageous. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I can't believe how stupid she is. Yeah. And she claims with no proof at all, oh, uh, violence interrupters have lowered sh uh, uh, shootings or lowered murders 80%. And I was like, where'd she get that from? Where did she that statistic come from? It's an arbitrary number they just put out. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It can't be sourced in any way. Um, yeah, listen, the, uh, and they're paying them. All those are ex-gang members, by the way. It's, uh, it is what it is. It's, it's not something you can ever quantify, you know, what, what that whole program. It's done under uh, de Blasio. Yeah, well, what it is, Chief, is just a money grab, and it's redistrib redistributing wealth to people that are, are criminals that can't get a job. So let's give them free money because the only thing they know how to do is, is gangbang. And let's, you know, let's act like they have some kind of skill. They're social workers now, you know? Yeah. Giving them way too much credit, but that's, that's, that's what it is. So you have, you have radical politicians and we've had, we, they really ruined the city. We have, we have this uh, 
one person, I can't remember his name right now, is, is still defending bail reform. Are you out of your mind? Everybody knows it's failed and failed mightily. Um, and it's not even willing to tweak it. And it doesn't make any sense to me. This is not my city anymore. I, I look back and I got out in 2018 and the numbers were really low. And we understood that, you know, it, no more, you know, of, uh, of uh, the things we were doing, suppression policing. We understood all those things. We got into precision policing, maybe seven or 8,000 of the real hardcore people we got to keep, keep in. But they're letting burglaries out, burglaries out, career burglars, just getting right back out again. And it, there's no stopping on. And it just keeps going and going. Car thieves all over the place. So. They had a bank robbery, robbed the same bank four times, bailed four times. I mean, come on. It just doesn't end. And, you know, you, you, well, he passed the note, this and that. It doesn't matter. The person that's, you know, he's robbing takes years off their life. They don't think about the victims anymore. That's a lot of these focuses are not on the victims. And that, that caban that uh, Bill just brought up, she was on a, uh, a Zoom call yesterday, I believe it was. City Council was like uh, having some discussions about the broken windows policy. They're pushing back back on it saying that it targets just minorities and they came out with these numbers 90 percent of the 1500 people that were arrested were from the minority community on broken windows policy type uh, uh violations they cited urinating in public jumping in turnstile and having a driver's license that uh, i guess you don't need a driver's license to drive in new york city you know what they're saying according to what they're saying that that's you know that's affecting the, the minority community and they're really pushing back on the broken windows policy that Sewell and Adams are trying to implement again. They, they, it looks like they're going in the right direction. I mean, they started this, what they call modified anti-crime unit. They're calling it a gun unit, gun suppression unit, whatever it is. They are trying, but they're getting tremendous pushback from uh, uh, Jamani Williams and a lot of people in the city council on this caban. So uh, we know it works. We lived through it in the 80s and the 90s. We saw the reductions in crime based on broken windows policy type policing and uh you know, they, they're trying to do that. But like you said, Chief, we lost our city. It's not a city anymore. It's, uh, it's it's like a revolving door justice. There's no fear at all for these gangbangers to carry guns. They're all carrying. They'll whip them out and start shooting. I mean, a three-year-old shot the other day coming out of a daycare. I mean, we could go on and on. There's just yeah. so many shootings and the violence. And then they want to have convicted gangbanger felons as violence interrupters that are supposedly going to stem violence. No, they're going to get in the way of criminal investigation. That's what they're going to do. Police try to uh, make an arrest. They're going to get in the middle of it and they're just going to, uh, you know, impede, uh, you know, an arrest situation. So, uh, like well, really so the head, the head blood in Brooklyn. Now at one time I had to see, I was CEO of the gang division before, and I knew every, every, every head of every gang there was, he is now a violence interrupter. Come on. Now. There you go. Uh, it, it just keeps going. I listen, we, we're all veterans. We know this isn't the eighties and the nineties yet. We know that. Uh, but it's 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 fallen back. I mean, you remember in the early '90s with with yeah. crack. It was it was just really a tough time to be a cop. Uh, but I tell you, I, I, I always was excited by the job. I always liked it. I always couldn't wait to get to work because every day was a different day. You know, and uh, I say that all the time. It's absolutely true. I just I just couldn't wait to get to work. And they, and I always worked in challenging neighborhoods. Didn't bother me at all. You know, and I just I just wanted to get there and and because the night went like that. Now, you know, once he got there, but uh, it's not that yet, but hopefully that'll stop. And I'll tell you what, I still talk to people in the precincts I worked in, the seven, five, the six, seven calls me all the time. Great community. There. They want this. They want us to be the police again. They really do. It, it's it's just outside uh, noise, if you will, that's that's stopping us from doing it. And, and listen, I, I met the PC the other day. She was great. 
um, and, uh, I, and I have full confidence in her, and she's a, she's a, she's a great person. I think she's exactly what we need right now. You know, the only problem, Chief, is that uh, a very small group of people hold a lot of power, and yeah. you know, the state and the New York City um, Council, they both don't want bail reform, and they really have to be removed. That's the only thing you could say is they need to be removed because Tiffany Caban was almost the Queens district attorney Yeah, by a hair. She was almost the Queens district. And look, look at Bragg. Bragg walked it back after he almost got fired before he had his job. You know, he he went in there with a full Soros menu. You know, know, Judge Brown was one of my favorite DAs too. And to see that office turn like that, and there was some great, uh, great prosecutors in the Queens DA office. Thank God she didn't get it. You know, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so it is what it is. This is the new life we're living in, and it's not fair. I live in the city. I walk about. I see the changes. Um, again, it's not the 80s yet. It's not, the, it's not even the, it's not the early 90s yet. But we don't want to go back to that time because because uh, just too many lives were lost. And it's just, and, and again, uh, my heart's always with people in the 737567. That's where I work, the South Bronx. Still talk to those people as well. I don't want this going back because their lives matter to me. They're, that's those communities. Those cops who work there matter to me. So I, I really hoping that things change for the better. I really do. It seems yeah, like we're going down that track, yeah. but like you said, it might not be that bad right now. I mean, if you think back time, you couldn't walk in Times Square in, in the late eighties, early nineties. And then when things got better, I took my family when my kids were small and it was great. You know, every plenty of cops around, everybody was having a good time. Now hey, you got to dodge bullets. You go to Times Square. It's crazy. It's insane. It's, it's, you know, listen, unless you do something with those folks, those uh, peddlers there, it's going to keep getting worse. I, I don't, I don't get it because this could easily be resolved there in Times Square, but they won't. Well, you know, Chief, the guy who shot the three people was shooting at his brother. Right. That's <laughs> crazy, right? And that was an argument over, uh, they were peddling stuff. They were arguing yeah. over CDs or whatever it was. And yeah, and he yeah. shot three people. And that's, that's perfectly uh, evidence of how quality of life enforcement would have stopped the shooting. Well, those are all scams. Everything they're selling is. is, is yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous that we're even having this conversation. Was this, you know, um, let's not put Tom Patel on it, bring him back and have him, have him address it. And that, uh, we'll be gone the next day. We wouldn't have this <laughs> but the, but they want to take those uh you know those tools away. I mean the biggest tool I think they took away that uh, uh, helped the most was uh having jumping the turnstile be a misdemeanor and when then they changed it to a civil matter it's like people have license to just jump the turnstile now. Yeah, it was an erosion of of of, of our quality of life in this city and I saw it coming when I was still on a job. They wanted to forgive summonses criminal court summonses from a certain time back. I saw this coming through uh, Mock J at the time under the de Blasio administration. Um, and it was just, they were running too much in the city, had too much too much power, and they were changing things left and right. I couldn't lock up a guy who shot on a warrant. Even though he had a warrant, I couldn't put him in cuffs, try to get some um, some leverage on him to get him to tell me who did it. You know, and, and things, it got that bad. It was just like a, uh, well, we pushed back. And so I look back when I left, we were, you know, in, in 18, the city was in great shape. But then, you know, then Floyd and then everything changed after that. So, right. But 14 was a tough year, too, a tough summer. We had a lot of protests and we had a tough time uh, with that as well. Um, and we had the two officers shot, um, you know, uh, uh, Jin Lu and Ralphie uh, uh, Ramos. And they, were, they were murdered because of this. And I will always say that and it's not talked about enough. Um, that the person who murdered him, Brimsley, sought them out and looked to, to, to commit a homicide to two of our to our cops. And it's because of the rhetoric that went out. So reckless speech matters when they say these things, when politicians say things. And if 
burns me to you know, to, to know those two those two uh, great men are dead now because of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's even like Chief when you were talking about bail reform before. Uh, the police department put out statistics, real statistics on how bail reform is is hurting the city. And then I've seen the New York Times write, there is no evidence. This was their sentence. There's no evidence that bail reform has caused the rise in crime. Uh, what, what, what are they reading or what are they listening to where they just invented that? They love that line, too. There is no evidence. The New York Times, I see, uses that practically every day. Well, you know what? There's, they always say no empirical evidence. They always say. Let, let me tell you something. You know, it's, it's an altruistic thing to, to lower pretrial detainees. I understand that. But you have to do it with common sense. And they didn't consult any of us on this at, at all. So it's uh, had they known, they would have known that uh, that uh, burglars are fed by drugs. They're fed by heroin. They break into things. And you just can't keep letting them out. Otherwise, you get more and more crime. It's as simple as that. Same thing with car thieves. The, the GLA numbers are through the roof. We had this licked. It was stunned. We, the, the car thefts were way below. Now it's all back. Someone just stole a catalytic converter in my street where I live just oh, two, so I go, two weeks ago. That's no, I saw I saw for February, uh, GLAs are up 104.7% yeah. for the month of February. Crazy. And overall crime is up just shy of 59% in the seven majors. Now, th those are, you know, and uh, I don't want to take off Kenny Curry. Kitty Corby, we just talked about this the other day. He said, we are going against low numbers, Gene Bob. And I said, yeah, I know we are. But uh, but I, I think he's a great man. He's he's actually the person to do it, to get the thing turned around. The people there in place, the PC, Corey, it's, it's all good. Jimmy Essig is, is, is a great chief of detectives. We can get this done. We just need the political will to get it done. That's the issue. It's chief, I say it every time. There's three components to the criminal justice system, the police, corrections, and courts. If all three aren't on the same page, it ain't happening. It's a mess, yeah. It's a mess, and uh, and so I, I do. I am I an optimist? I am. I hope we get our city back. I really do. To the levels that that that, that we saw, probably not, but hopefully close to it. That's what I'm hoping for. Now, and I and yeah. listen. I always say, thank God for the NYPD detective because they're the unsung heroes in, in in this city. They do a great job. You see a, a heinous crime, and the next day you see the perp walk. Come on, man. They do it time and time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, and, the, and the public expects it. <laughs> they they expect do, they don't, I don't know if, if everybody appreciates it. I think folks, do. Yeah. they don't realize the work that goes into that. You just drop your life uh, for, for two days and then you chase this guy. The, the, the maniac who stabbed that woman in Queens uh, going to the subway nine times or something like that. They, oh. had, you know, they had him less than 10 hours later. That takes a lot of work where you don't sleep and, and you just keep going. So this is great work and it has to be told how good they are, how, you know, what's going on in the city. So 100%. Uh, and, and that, that's, that's what the show is all about. That's what I'm going to be about next season as well is this, this is, and it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch them figure these things out as you go forward. Folks, Chief Boyce is referring to the show um, NYPD homicide on the oxygen network. He just informed us that they got a second season. I hope he consults Phil and I, who were the stars of Police Off the Cuff, <laughs> to come on the show. We <laughs> met on the perfect murder. That's right. We met invitation. Uh, we, uh, with Philly, with, with LB Smoney Gardens, we, we had you and two other great Brooklyn, uh, Vinny DiDonato and Jimmy. I mean, it was, uh, we were actually going to subtitle you. The Brooklynese was so heavy on that show. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was great. It was a great tale. And we brought justice to the family, a great New York family. Listen, Chief, you don't know how much justice you brought because there's been several uh, rumors, stories on TV, the organized crime, heroin, all these different things. And you put all of that to rest that there was no 
uh, organized crime uh, relation to the murder itself, as well as to the family, the uh, LMB Spumoni Gardens family. So uh, they, they were very happy with that, that, you know, listen, they run in a business for over 80 years and, you know, yeah. all the rumor and innuendo. Uh, we got to tip our hat to you and to the to the great work. Oh, it's, of the it's, it's all about it's all about the detectives who do the work. It's not me. I'll yeah. tell you one thing about that case. We knew who the perp was. About yes, we knew we had phone calls. We we were on him right off the bat, but we had to do a lot of work. We had to get his phone. We had because he had he was a bad murderer too. He's a terrible guy. He's uh, but he was he left so many things that it was he put it together. But we had to clear up that silly mob business, you know. Right. But I was I was driving home every night, and I would say it's a botched robbery on on the, on the press conferences, and two guys on the radio, QB and Curtis. Boyce is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And I'm, I'm hearing this, and my guy's driving me to, to elbow me and stuff like that. You should call right now. I said, I'm not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to this nonsense. But they, they didn't know what they were talking about, actually. It was. Sliwa actually had an argument with Arthur Idala, who does the show. And yeah. Sliwa was making comments oh, yeah, the, the source, you know, the gangsters, bop, bop, bop. And, you know, Arthur Idala knows the victim very well and said, listen, you're wrong. The guy was behind the counter making heroes his whole life. And, you know, he wasn't a bad guy. You got it wrong. No, and they actually had like almost an argument, you know. So we're glad that that was all cleared up. That actually, I actually got the call on the perp. They made a call into LB and then the family called me and said, listen, somebody gave this name. I gave it to the detectives. And 20 minutes later he called me back and said phil this is the guy he's yeah. got the car registered in his name yep. and uh, everything just went from there which was uh which, which was great you know like you said it was uh it was amateur night for this guy because he made wow. a million mistakes most of the uh the whole situation was caught on videotape and cameras around the area and then the cell phone technology and on and on it went so uh but he got his uh, just deserved convicted uh the i gotta mention emily dean on that case was the prosecutor she now works for the u.s attorney's office what a, a, a she did some tremendous open and her summation was tremendous. She talked for almost two hours without even looking at a note, had places, times. So there was a great uh, team effort, NYPD, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, FBI. That was a great case. And the show that you did on it did the case uh, very much justice. It was excellent. Phil, we got to go to a quick break. Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. The secret to quickly hiring the best police officers before your competition does. With an extremely limited job candidate pool, law enforcement agencies have to quickly identify and hire qualified police officers before another agency does. That's why nearly 70 U.S. agencies have updated their hiring process to include iDetect, a fast, affordable, non-invasive, unbiased, and automated lie detector that accurately identifies lies by watching the eyes. iDetect also helps solve crimes. We had Conversa CEO Todd Mickelson, and he shared stories about how I detect is changing the way the world detects deception. Remember, the eyes don't lie. Converse.com, 1-801-331-8840, and you can email them at info at Converse.com. New technology, Chief. They're saying they're just as good as a lie detector test, and they just read the pupils of the eyes. 
Uh, it just never ends, Bill. You know, when, listen, if you're chief of D, uh, you had to, I had to buy a lot of uh, uh, technology for our, for our detectives, and uh, it's all it's usually money well spent. You know, DOS light and um, and Cobalt, which is a linkage thing, and um, it really helps you. It really is a game changer, and, and it's, it's even better if the perps don't know about it. So it's uh, yeah, so it, it helps a lot. Well, you know, Chief, what could help solve the stop question and frisk debacle is they also have the distance x-rays that can, you can point it at someone that can tell you whether he's carrying a gun, but that'll never pass the, uh, the civil liberties people. Yeah. They'll say, oh, no, that's not fair. You know? It's more invasive. Yeah, no, we, I've heard that uh, I heard that argument many, 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 many times. Yeah. It's just like the, uh, you know, like the shot spotter, right? I tell you, it's... Uh, it, was, it really changed everything for us. It, it helped us. Uh, we, when I left, it was we were under 800 shootings for the year. I mean, it's I don't know where we are now, to be honest with you, but it's 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 completely changed. We went after the gangs. That's the gangs are the ones who were shooting up the city. And once yeah, once yeah. you start putting them in jail, um, and um, and, you, and you go after prosecuting, that's that's the game changer right there as far as shootings go. 100. percent You know, also, Chief, the um, the license plate reader is a great tool. Also, I mean, just to be able to know when perps are leaving a borough, coming to another borough, terrorists, all of that stuff. It's an invaluable tool. It is, and we put some, and uh, we had a big problem in Coney Island, Phil, you know this. We had a lot of shoots over there, and a lot of gangs in, 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 the, in the developments over there. We put shot spotters on those cropsy, and I think there's only a couple ways in off the belt, and we were picking up the perps all the time. It was, it was a real, it was a real uh, change there. Helped us reduce the shootings in, the, uh, in Coney Island a lot. Just those, those things alone um, help you out with things. Alan B, we never got him going over. We thought he was going over. He's going to flip the bridge to Baranzano. He didn't. He went to Long Island. We always, I always thought he was a Staten Island guy until we until we actually found out who he was. And we changed yeah. it. But those, those shot, that technology um, and the, the uh, and in City Hall, they give you a hard time in the City Council with that. But we have to have it. it keeps the city safe, especially against terrorism. Sure. You know, you wonder like, what is it that they want that they don't want to. The citizens of the city to be safe when every time look the robot i thought the robot was a great tool it was a little scary looking but they vetoed that right away oh they didn't like that dog i remember that it was it, yeah it, so you know but we always had a robot you know we always had that robot to go to save lives and look what dallas the dallas police did with their robot he carried a, um, an explosive at that time uh if you remember that case um was, oh in uh, orlando yes oh, i thought it was yeah. dallas but you might be you might be you know, I, I don't remember. orlando they blew up the club that was that club that the guy oh, yeah. was oh, that was that was yeah yeah the pace nightclub uh yes yeah, yeah, and yeah. they the robot came in and just like blew out the whole wall uh, it's, it's it's listen uh, if you got something you got a bad guy and that's old school stuff he's going to kill other people then you know he terminates himself by doing that by keep going on that's the way i look at that but yeah no these things we have to have and um, you know it's it's it, people doing it. Taro giving us information, giving us pictures. We 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 learned in Manhattan. I don't know why anybody commits a crime in Manhattan because if we really want to find you, we'll find you with with the amount of cameras that are there. And it's uh and that's what it is. It's uh in the Communelli case, the first case we did with the kid kill, uh, uh, murdered coming out of the club. We had pictures of the of them putting the uh, the body in the back of a um, of a Mercedes and driving out to Jersey. We had it covered, and we had compelling evidence in that case all these things come come you know stick ups on on fifth avenue we had a crew out of uh, um out of abbott's field one time did a stick up in one of the uh, we had we had him in custody in an hour and a half because we had because we had plate readers it's amazing you know you know the girl who was killed in the uh, burger king on uh, in east Harlem. same thing i heard they tracked that shooter down into the subway all the way to brooklyn and they picked him up in brooklyn 
and the dope uses EBT card at, at, a, at a, a bodega, and that's how we ID them. And then, then oh, we said, yeah, yeah it's just one of those it's really good detective work. I'm always, I'm always marvel at it, and I always will. I, they tell me how to break down the case, and I look at the uh, you know, timelines and the cadence of the investigation. And each time I see it, uh, I just, I just, I just enjoy it so much for creating it. I'm just happy I was part of it at one time. Anyway, you know, one time we had this case in. Uh in a 3-0 precinct where a 13-year-old girl was murdered by these two guys that she met on a phone party line. So you know how long ago this was. And there was video of them coming into the building, but it was really murky. And there was video of them coming out of the building. Same thing, couldn't ID them. So the detective, being very smart, he shows them the video of them going in, and the guy goes, hey, that's me. And then he shows them the video of them leaving with the stuff from the burglary after they killed her and the guy goes that's me too so it was like thanks <laughs> we couldn't that, use that and you get that all on tape on uh, when you when you interview them in the interview room which we which we did too well uh, in, in in my time we uh had to outfit every detective squad in the city with a um in, in an interview room that was all that was all videotaped and that's helps in court as well so uh and that's great when you get that spontaneous thing it's uh, Dan, Dan Bibb, a former Manhattan DA, great DA, 26-year veteran. Now he's a defense attorney. He says, license plate readers prove my client didn't commit a rape. <laughs> so it works both ways. both ways, yeah. Right? That's good. That puts us on a different path to get the bad guy in. That's what's important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what? If you look at the uh, – there was the incident, I guess it was about three years ago, where the guy, the terrorist, drove up the, the sidewalk and ran over a bunch of people. They had him coming into Manhattan through the Bronx. They had the exact route that he took between uh, traffic cameras, plate readers, and all the surveillance cameras in the city. So that technology – listen, as you – you know, every day goes on and we get a little better at it. Now we're, we're merging uh, the lie detector test with that pupil reader, the converse uh, system. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I'll take it. You know, if uh, if it could, uh, you know, maybe put us in the right direction on whether a guy did it or didn't do it. Uh, you know, like we just had from Dan Bibbs, a uh, license plate reader cleared his guy. Oh, that's okay. Like you said, Chief, it put us in the right direction to find the guy that did. Yeah, that was Sefulo Saipov was the it was the, it was the guy who who rented the um, the truck at uh, Home Depot and drove it. We had the whole thing staked out at that point, point. Um, and he was under the wire. Uh, we didn't know who he was. I, I really think he was he was clearly um, radicalized. You can see but as he as he went along. Um, but it was a tough day, man. It was a tough day. Uh, really yeah. was, it was. Uh, I'll never forget that one. Again, it was a, it was an FBI case, but we we helped with the crime scene and it was uh, had to shut down the West Side Highway. You know, to get that done. What was there? Uh, it was yeah. 13 people killed, right? Oh, no, not that many, Bill, but there was 13 people hit. Uh, oh, I think okay. and I think eight were murdered by this guy. Uh, and it was it's a weirder story because as we're looking through their IDs, they were all from Argentina. Um, yes, uh, I remember that. They were all in a high school uh, reunion. All, 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 the, all the guys just going down there on their bicycles, and he, and he murdered them, brutally murdered them. Uh, so, uh, and then, then he acted, uh, then he was going through ISIS. He wanted to flame out with the police, and Fortunately, our cops uh, ended that, and um, and uh, I don't think it's even gotten the trial yet, as far as I know. So uh, it's just we. I had three terrorist incidents when I was chief of day that I had to work, and uh, and I and it, again, you put it on a different mindset. Same thing with hostage negotiation. You're not talking to a criminal; you're talking to a terrorist. It's a different story. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. folks. Uh, I think this this show was fascinating. We started with the Met Sanguine. I think we covered every topic known to man. Solved most problems in the universe. But uh, and, and in only an hour and seven minutes, Chief, I want to thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. And you're welcome to come back anytime you want to come back. 
the show is New York Homicide, and it's on the Oxygen Network, and they just got another season, so there's going to be some amazing shows coming up. We just all like to close you to this with the Amet Sanguin case. Uh, Daryl Littlejohn was o- already had 25 to life, and I believe he got sentenced to a consecutive 25 to life on the Met Sanguin case. Is that right? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll never see him again. That's, that's, that's great. Thank God. You know, I don't. We don't ever want to see him. But you know, you said they said that about Anthony Bottoms too. You know. Yeah. Well, so let's hope that as a society we, we finally realize that the you know, this 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 is just pure evil psychopath, and uh, and he's got to stay where he is. Absolutely. Phil, final words? Final words, Chief. Thank you so much. Good luck with the show. Uh, I say it was great, and I got a lot of feedback that it was great. Um, a friend of mine, James O'Connell, that uh, Bill and I know, he texted me during the show and said, who coined the phrase, the greatest detectives in the world? I don't know who did, but I believe it to be true. Chief, any uh, input on that before we go? I, I, I wish I knew too, but I tell you what, they were 100% accurate, whoever that was. And you should get a medal. We're saying it because it, 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 is, it is true. And 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 you know what it is. You, you, you grab a case and you don't know which way is up. And all of a sudden, you know, within a couple of minutes, you're up and running uh, because you're trained, you're, 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 you're smart, you're savvy, and you go forward with it. And uh, again, kudos to the detectives in the city. They, uh, they, uh, it's well-earned, those shields. Absolutely. Chief, thanks again for coming on the show, folks. All you guys in the chat, thank you so much for coming by and listening to the show. This has been Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. We'll see you the next time. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just